When we humans gaze at our own sun, and I'm not suggesting we sit up and stare at the sun, uh, sit around and do that. that. That's not what I mean, but you get the point. When we see our sun, we may not be aware that we are not actually viewing the surface of the sun much the same way that we might view any other physical body. Like if I, right now I'm sitting in my bedroom um, recording this uh, commentary on my little iPod, and I'm looking across the room at a chair that's sitting over in the corner. And the chair's got to be, what, uh, uh, I don't know, seven, eight, ten feet away from where I'm sitting. And um, I see the chair. There's no doubt that my eyes are seeing the chair. But as I see the sun, as I go outside, I, mean, I can't right now because it's night, but, and plus it's snowing. But if I go out and I look up at the sun on a sunny day, in reality, because of the great distance from the earth that the sun actually is, I'm not really seeing the sun. I'm seeing what, is, what scientists tell me is a delayed image of the sun. In other words, scientists have shown that our sun is about 93 million miles away from the earth. And that, um, for instance, if it were to go supernova, if it were to explode... The light from the sun would take approximately eight minutes to reach the Earth-based observers, or if the sun went dark or something like that. Um, in other words, because of the great distance um, and, and how long, how fast light travels, which is, what, 186,000 miles per second, the distance divided into the 93 million miles um, takes approximately eight minutes for the light to travel uh, across the, uh, the expanse there. That means that what I see right now, if I were to look at the sun, if I were to go outside and look at the sun again, um, it isn't really the full revelation represented by the surface of the sun. I'm not really looking at the ball as I perceive it in real time. To be sure, the energy being burned off by our sun is too powerful for my naked eye to withstand. Um, you know, again, I don't recommend anyone going out staring at the sun without, or even examining the sun, even just looking at it without some sort of eye protection. But because the sun is known to our naked eye by its sunlight, you know, the warmth that it gives to us, uh, I do receive all of the revelation needed to sustain my life here on earth. Sunlight does wonderful things for humans. It, uh, to be sure, it also does a lot of damaging things. But um, be beyond that point, um, God created the sun for our benefit. And so um, I personally don't need to see the surface of the sun uh, to enjoy its warmth and its life-giving light. Its radiant energy um, will suffice to, to give me uh, what I need to get from the sun. Well, how does this figure into the Torah? Where am I going with this? Well, I believe that when man encounters the Holy God, that Hashem gives us, man, a veiled revelation of himself, lest we, feeble man, be consumed in the holiness of an otherwise unfathomable God. Okay, There is a gulf between us and God, and the gulf cannot be crossed by us, lest we die. I cannot go into space and travel to the surface of the sun to examine the sun. In my journey, I would perish. I would never reach the surface of the sun. I would die before I got there. So my, my, my journey would be in vain. So in a sense, in my little analogy, God being the sun, um, the S-U in there, um, God closes the gap for me. Um, whenever God 
uh, interacted with man in the, in the time periods of the Tanakh that we read about, um, he's used a variety of ways to manifest his holiness among men. We're talking, of course, about a theophany. Um, these theophanies include what? An angelic representative, a burning bush, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. We've had thick darkness. We've had thunderous voices, etc. These are all encounters with the living God, but yet veiled for our benefit so that we can somehow interact with God on a level that we can both comprehend, uh, relate with, and yet not um, be consumed. Um, All of these manifestations are known in Hebrew thinking as um, the neighboring presence of God in such a way, the, the Shekhinah, which is a word that's not found in the Torah. It's a word that the rabbis have actually um, given to us. And it comes from the word word Shachan, which means to dwell. God comes close to us, Shachan. And in, in his coming close to us, we perceive his closeness without actually dying in the process. Now, in the case of... Um, of uh, our passage here in chapter 24, when Hashem decided to manifest himself to his people, well, he needed to, quote, conceal himself in such a way as to not actually kill the individual receiving his revelation, Moshe and the elders. Now, although Moshe and the leaders catch a glimpse of his holiness here in our parasha, notice they don't describe his face, just his feet and, and such, um, the best and most complete revelation that we, the world, we humans, have ever had of Hashem still remains to be in the person and life of Yeshua, His divine Son. In fact, you could say that Yeshua is a prolonged theophany of God the Father without disrespecting the person and work of Yeshua the Son Himself. I'm not trying to disrespect either person. God forbid. Rather, because God is invisible and the Son has made the invisible visible, we, the humans who live in the natural, perceive and understand, nay, we see the Father by seeing the Son. And that's about the best we can get. The language is still a little fail, uh, faulty, but that's how Yeshua describes it when he says to what Thomas, when Thomas said, show us the Father, I'm sorry, Philip said, show us the Father, and Yeshua said, haven't I been with you long enough, of course, I'm paraphrasing, haven't I been with you long enough for you to understand that to see me is to see the Father? Of course, again, the Father is invisible. Now, to be sure that, that, that the Father and the Son are of the same oneness, John explains to us in his uh, first chapter, John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Hebrew says, Bereshit haya hadavar v'hadavar haya im ve'elohim haya hadavar, I believe. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting that from memory, by the way. Um, but he tells us that the Word was made flesh, in verse 14, and dwelt among us. The Hebrew would be v'shachanti um, batocham, uh, the same language used in Exodus chapter 25 that we're going to read about coming up where in Parashat Trumah God says, Make a tabernacle so that I might dwell among you. Um, John tells us that the word was made flesh and dwelled among us. And I gave you the Hebrew, um, Vashakanti Batocham, 
but in the Greek, the term dwelled shares the exact same root um, as the words for tabernacle do in the other Greek sources. I believe it's uh, skenos or skenu. Um, I'm, again, pulling that out of memory. I've not, I've not got my uh, Greek lexicon sitting in front of me. You can check that out for me if you'd like to back me up or correct me if you'd like. At any rate, we do know that the term dwelled in the Hebrew um, shares the exact same root word as the word shechinah. The Hebrew word for dwell, shachan, neighbor, and the word shechinah, which is, of course is the manifest presence of God dwelling close to us, is uh, share the same root. Our neighbor is is someone who dwells close to us. And in a sense, God said, I want to come close and dwell with you, dwell among you. And what better way to do it than to take the form of human substance, to become a man and dwell with us. Back to our Torah portion. In the Torah portion, everything was sprinkled with blood. The book of Hebrews goes on to comment about this and informs us that in accordance to the Torah, almost everything is purified with blood. This ceremony was performed on the earthly copies. Remember, the earthly copies are shadows of a heavenly reality. Yeshua is the, uh, uh, um, the effectual atoning blood that is sprinkled... I'm sorry, let me say that a different way. Yeshua's blood is that effectual atoning blood sprinkled on the heavenly originals. So even the blood on earth represents the blood in heaven. And the blood in heaven is Yeshua's. And the blood here on earth was that of animals. And so they represent the Messiah in heaven. The blood on earth is sprinkled on the earthly copies. And by by um, comparison or in concert with that, Yeshua's blood was... Um, was was said to uh, well, where does it say that off the top of my head? I was about to say that Yeshua's blood is sprinkled on the heavenly originals. Um, I don't have a verse for that. Amazingly, I'll have to go back and look that up. I do apologize. Just off the top of my head, I was about to utter something and I don't know where the reference is for that. So uh, please accept my apology. At any rate, to be sure, Hebrews goes on to say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, how could Moshe and the elders, in our portion, chapter 24 of Exodus, how could they be in the presence of the sinless one without a covering? They could not. Therefore, the blood was their covering. So, if you want a revelation and need to be cleansed, come into the presence of the living God of Israel. But be warned. You cannot experience His glorious presence without a covering of some sort. You want to come close to God? Come close to God. The Torah says, draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. Draw nigh unto me and I'll draw nigh unto you is how it's worded in the KJV. However, God requires a covering. But what covering am I referring to? The sinless blood of His Son, of course. There's no other covering that, that effectually meets the requirement of God. Even the blood of the animals only served to purify the flesh on a temporary basis. Um, it served to remove the sin uh, that the people carried with them as they entered into the um, tabernacle and into the, ultimately the temple to interact with God or to interact with the priests who interacted with God. 
But today, we don't have the animals. We don't have the priests. We don't have the uh, temple. There's no tabernacle. Can we enter into the presence of God? Yes, we can. How do we do so? With the presence of Yeshua. With the um, reality of His blood being sprinkled on our hearts. Today, if you will receive the gift of the Son, then the Spirit of Hashem will write the Torah of Hashem upon the doorposts of your heart, and the blood will be applied there, the blood of the Son, the blood of the Lamb. And if you place your trusting faithfulness in the fullest, complete, visible, manifest presence of Hashem, that is His Son, then you too will receive a revelation of Him who is the living Torah. This next section is an excursus to the commentary Parashat Mishpatim. The excursus is entitled, The Written Law. The term law in the English Bible derives from the Greek word namas, and namas itself is a translation of the Hebrew word Torah, so that whenever in the Greek we find the word um, namas, it's actually referring to the Hebrew word Torah. In the Hellenistic period that extended from the 3rd century um, BCE, before the Common Era, to the 1st century BC and onward, the original Hebrew word Torah was rendered by namas, which was the Greek word for law. Now, the Septuagint, which is usually represented in, in writings by the Roman numerals LXX, um, is the most important Greek version of the Hebrew Bible coming from the Hellenistic period of the first century. Uh, in fact, it is the um, Bible that Yeshua uh, was familiar with as well as the Masoretic text that was coming into existence. The Masoretic text is the Hebrew and the Septuagint is simply the Greek equivalent of that Hebrew. I believe Yeshua would have been familiar with both of them. Um, the uh, the Septuagint cons- uh, constantly translates the word Torah as namas, as we read. Um, the law also meant, quote, the law of the Lord. So sometimes the word law there is simply shorthand for the law of, of, of Adonai, of Hashem. In fact, the references to Luke 2.23 uh, and 24 and verse 39, we'll see where it says the law of the Lord, simply means the Torah. The law is the will of the Lord. It is, in fact, the um, revelation of his thoughts and of his, of his, um, his intentions. So it's very important that we gain a proper perspective of the Torah. The, the law is not simply a legal code, but it is a totality of the revelation of Hashem. Totality in all that, in the sense that it's what God has given us. It is a limited revelation, but it is complete in that it is what He has given us, and we need not speculate as to what else could have been or should have been written. The word that we have transmitted and and handed down to us today um, is a complete revelation in its in its uh, original autographs. It gives the people of God instructions on how they should live just and how or how they should live justly and how they should carry on their ordinary lives by showing mercy to their neighbors among other functions the law was designed to provide detailed instructions about how the ancient israelites should prepare and offer sacrifices to their god we're going to read about that in the upcoming uh, book of leviticus the law also showed them how to make distinctions between clean and unclean foods and other things and it taught them how to deal with criminal justice in their communities. Moreover, as Yeshua summarized so well, quote, 
The weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy and faith. End quote. That's from Matthew 23.23. Now, of course, the Pentateuch, which is another phrase for the first five books of Moses, it does contain the legal codes. And what is more, they are to be understood as the will or teachings of Hashem. Um, we've heard the phrase um, Torah Shebektav. It's, well, maybe you haven't heard that before. It's actually a rabbinic term. Uh, Torah Shebektav refers to that which was written. Um, Katav there, the last part of the clause, uh, means um, to write, uh, where we get the phrase, um, the ketuvim, the writings. So Shora Kabik, uh, Torah Shebektav refers to the written Torah. Now when we look back into the history of the Bible, it's evident that the scriptures have had a long process of development. Judaism itself makes reference to the entire corpus of ancient scriptures by use of a moniker that I've used from time to time called Tanakh. And it's actually an acronym formed from the three Hebraic sections of what Christians would call their Old Testament. Uh, namely, the Torah, the first five books, the T. And then we have the next section called the Nevi'im, which is the plural of the word Navi, um, which means prophet. Navi means prophet. Nevi'im, prophets. So we got the T and then the N. And then the last section is called Ketuvim, which is a word formed from the um, singular Katav, which means write. Um, so Ketuvim means writings. Um, thus we end up with Law, Prophets, and Writings, or Tanakh, the acronym TNK. Now, firstly, the Torah itself came into existence um, as we are reading through the Torah, we know that the way that it has been recorded is the way that it was, in fact, historically given. The Torah came first. The um, um, the rest of the prophetic writings came, and then the rest of the, the Tanakh. Um, technically referred to as the, uh, as the hagiographer, um, they follow the Torah. The Torah was recognized as scripture much sooner than the prophets and the hagiographer. Um, in fact, at the time of Yeshua, the last section of the Tanakh did not yet enjoy canonical status. So sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the um, the law and the prophets. Um, the writings themselves were still kind of in flux. It was only until late in the first century A.D. that we Jewish people recognized the hagiographer as part of our scriptures. The Gospels, therefore, constantly mention, because of this feature, they constantly mention, quote, the law and the prophets, just like in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, Think not that I've come to do away with the law, the prophets. He doesn't say, think not that I've come to do away with the law, the prophets, and the writings. So, um, the phrase, law and the prophets, was synonymous with the Bible at the time of Yeshua. In fact, if I pull a quote from Acts 13, verse 15, it reads, quote, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the officials of the synagogue, you know, quote, um, Acts is telling us just what part, what Bible they were using. Um, and then, of course, uh, Matthew 5.17, quote, Do not think that I've come to abolish all the prophets, the reference I just gave you. And then there's another one I want to bring in from Matthew 22.40, which says, quote, And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we see from these few examples that it is the law and the prophets that formed the, quote, Bible of the first century. Now, there are eight other instances in the Brihadashah uh, the Apostolic Scriptures, where the expression Law and Prophets is used to denote the Bible of that time. Those references are Matthew 7, 12, 11, 13, Luke 16, 16, as well as 24, 44. Then we have John 1, 45, 
and then we have Acts 24.14, Acts 28.23, and then finally Romans 3.21. Quite often, however, either law or prophets is shown to be standing alone and still conveying the same meaning, viz. the scriptures. For instance, um, in the New Testament there are passages like, quote, Have you not read in the law that... End quote. And that's, of course, from Matthew 12.5. And it says, Have you not read in the law... And we have, end quote, so that the scriptures of the prophet may be fulfilled. So we have, have you not read in the law? It doesn't say law and the prophets, just the law. We have places where we can just distinguish one by themselves. Um, and then, again, it says, so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Uh, Matthew twenty six fifty six. Similar instances are also found in Matthew 2, 23, uh, Matthew five eighteen, Matthew 12, 5, Luke 2, 22, and 23. Luke 16.29, Luke 18.31, Luke 24.27, and then also we have a reference in John 6.45 where you can find the phrases um, like law and scriptures. Now, the, the, the uh, purpose and meaning of the written law or the Torah, now codified in the Pentateuch, um, actually emanates from, as I mentioned earlier, the ten words which specify the covenant relationship between God and Am Israel. The ten words are almost like the uh, marriage document, the Ketubah, as I mentioned in the previous um, section of this commentary portion. The covenant code, or the book of the covenant, in Exodus 24, uh, verse 7, immediately follows the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. In fact, that's where we were talking about how the Moses and the elders went up and saw the God of Israel. And in 24-7 it reads, quote, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud so that the people could hear and they responded, quote, Everything that Adonai has spoken, we will do and obey. End quote. What is the book of the covenant? The Sefer Brit in Hebrew. Well, the book of the covenant is... Um, uh, it generally deals with the criminal and the civil laws. It's it's what I called the um, law earlier, as, as as in relationship to the um, the ten words themselves. So the covenant code of say Exodus twenty one twenty three deals with these civil matters, um, and consequently the literary form of the code takes a familiar legal structure, and it is there that I want to comment a bit about. Uh, it's the do's and don'ts that we read about and we oftentimes misunderstand what exactly the Torah is trying to convey to the community. Why the strict do's and don'ts? Well, let's talk about that. I want to introduce the terms casuistic and apodictic. Okay? Um, case law. <laughs> there are two forms in the legal code, right? There's casuistic and apodictic. The... Um, casuistic form is found in the first section of the covenant code in Exodus 21.1 through chapter 22.17. That's where we have um, the casuistic form. And I'll explain it in a moment. I just want to get the terms out there front. Um, the, uh, the, apodictic, the apodictic form is found in the second section which is chapter 20 through 2 verses 18 through 23. Um, let me just look at my Bible here for a second. 22, 18, yes, okay. Make sure I mark it out, uh, uh, checking my reference there. Now, the um, let's define the terms. The casuistic form first states a condition. Uh, the technical term for this is protasis. Alright? Casuistic is just protasis. And it normally begins with words like if or when. 
You know, it's like um, situational. That's why we call it case law. Um, the protasis describes the circumstances or the conditions that prompt the consequential injunctions. The second part, that is the injunction, is called the apodosis. So, we, so casuistic and apodictic is just another fancy way of saying protasis apodosis. It contains a statement of legal consequences uh, that go with the circumstances that may or may not begin with the word then. So we got if then. Now let me just give you two examples because some of you I know are, are getting confused. Quote, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. End quote. Now that example is taken right out of Exodus 21.7. And then let me give you one more out of Exodus 21.35, a few verses down. Quote, if someone's ox hurts the ox of another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the price of it. Okay? Let's break it down. The apodictic form usually found in the second part of the covenant code states the commands in the second person you. Um, actually, I'm sorry. Before I go on, let me break down those two, two verses. Um, in the case where it talked about the ox, notice how it starts with the if, and then it concludes with the then. All right, That's how we know that it is the, um, the casuistic form, or the apodictic. The apodictic form, the, um, uh, the apodictic, the, is uh, usually found in the second part of the covenant code, and it states commands in the second person, you. It gives commandments or prohibitions in direct forms without any description about the circumstances. Okay, That's how it differs from the, um, the casuistic form. For example, we read in Exodus 22, quote, you shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. Notice how it doesn't say if a sorcerer is found among you then you shall not permit her to live. It just simply comes out and says, quote, you shall not, and the you, of course, is second person singular. Um, Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, end quote. That's verses 18 and 19 of chapter 22. Let's pull out another one in chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 28. Quote, you shall not revile God or curse the leader of your people. Notice there's no if clause. It simply starts out with the injunction. The apodictic form is most common in other legal codes, uh, like the priestly and the holiness codes that we're going to read about in Leviticus chapters 11 through, ch- through chapters uh, 18. The priestly code is another legal document found in other parts of Exodus, Numbers, and specifically Leviticus. And it really specifically deals with matters related to religious concerns and ritual procedures. That's what we call it the priestly code. Perhaps the oldest and most distinct section of this code is, as I mentioned, the holiness code um, identified by biblical scholars as chapters 17 through 26 of Leviticus, which I might also add is the heart of the Torah. If you were to take the five books of Moshe and to split it kind of right down the middle, the heart of the of the um, pages or the book would be the Leviticus code here that I'm mentioning. Uh, the basic theological thrust of this code is stated in the following passage, quote, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. End quote. And of course that's lifted out of Leviticus 19.2. That is both the heart and thrust of the, the priestly code, the Leviticus code, and it is the heart of God's intent of bringing the passages to our knowledge. Let's conclude this little excursus with this commentary, or this uh, paragraph. The book of Deuteronomy, as the name indicates, 
it means the second law, Deuteronomos, Deutero second namas law. Um, the book of Deuteronomy contains legal codes pertaining to kingship, human relations, family life, and civil and cultic matters. It is a comprehensive guide to every aspect of community life. Um, perhaps this is why Yeshua quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book. Even though it constantly reminds the readers about the history of Hashem's dealings with Israel. Um, it speaks to everybody. Um, the core of this book became the source of King Josiah's reform in 621 BCE. Um, if you recall, the, um, the Torah had been, of sorts, lost. And King Josiah dis rediscovered the Torah among the ruins. Um, and as such, he became intently interested in reforming his community as a righteous king should. And he intently studied the book of Deuteronomy. The written Torah reflects not only the nomadic life before the settlement in the Promised Land, as of course we know that Deuteronomy ends before they reach the Promised Land, but um, the written Torah also presupposes the social milieu of Israel during the times of the kingdom. Isn't it interesting to observe in my um, closing of this particular section that the Torah presupposes that the people will make it to the land and as such it instructs them as to how to establish um, a community once they settle in the land. Therefore, in, 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 in that sense alone, the Torah is prophetic in, in letting the people know that they are going to reach the goal. Okay? That's all I want to say on this particular excursus on the Torah um, in this, in this uh, format. We'll go on to talk lots more about the Torah in the weeks to come and in the Torah portions to come. But for now, let me provide the closing blessing for Parashat Mishpatim. Okay? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Vechaye olam nata betochenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Have a wonderful Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com